of Monster Kid Radio is the song Surf Mummies from the band Radioactive Kids. It appears on their self-titled album over at radioactivekids.bandcamp.com and it appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. By their permission, I am Derek M. Cook, your host of this podcast, which is devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And this week, we are definitely taking a look at some classics. Well, I'm not. But Scott and Tracy Morris are. They are back here on the show to talk about Monster Mania, which was a two-day event at the historic Artcraft Theater in Franklin, Indiana. Now, this event happened last month. And Scott and Tracy, they went to the Artcraft. They saw six Universal Classics. Dracula, The Wolfman, and a bunch of others. Now, in part one of our debrief of Monster Mania, we're going to talk to Scott and Tracy about the art craft and these two films. Now, some of the films from the event were first-time viewings for Scott and Tracy, so I'm real curious to hear what they have to say about some of the movies, especially ones that they had never seen before. Now, these are movies that I've seen repeatedly, have owned in multiple formats over the years, and in some cases, I still have them in multiple formats on my movie shelves right now. So I'm pretty familiar with the movies. Scott and Tracy, not so much. They're bringing a fresh set of eyes, or I guess it's uh, two fresh sets of eyes because there's two. Anyway, they're bringing a fresh set of eyes to these films that we love so much. Scott and Tracy have appeared on Monster Kid Radio in the past, both together or as individual guest hosts with me here on the show. Of course, you can find our archives to find their episodes that they've been on before, as well as any other episode that we've done in the past over at our website at monsterkidradio.com. Net. You'll also find a link to the Radioactive Kids, of course. You'll hear the song Surf Mummies in its entirety at the end of the show, by the way. Also at our website, you'll find our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-4795-MKR. Of course, you'll find links to our Flickr album, our YouTube channel, and our Facebook group. We have a Facebook group as well as a Facebook page. I think I just added a couple of new members to the Facebook group. So head over there to get involved in conversations with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes. While you're on our website, go and take a look at episodes 44 and 45. Now, these are the episodes where we talked about the movie Island of Terror with friend of the show, Tom Beagler. Now, Tom is a sculptor. He's an artist, and he's a generous one at that. He has created a new piece of artwork, a couple of silicates from the movie Island of Terror. And not only are these sculpts, it's a diorama. There's silicates doing what silicates do in the movie. And he has donated this piece of original artwork to the show. And listeners, it's real easy to enter the drawing for this piece of artwork. All you got to do is email me your name, your mailing address, and the name of a modern monster movie that you think monster kids would need to see normally on monster kid radio we stick to the previous eras of monster movies typically we don't get out of the 60s under most circumstances however this time around we're asking you to take a look at movies that came out within the past 10 years and come up with a movie that you think monster kids are going to dig get this in an email to me by the end of this month that means by this saturday We need to get your emails in, and then I'm going to put you in a drawing. And in early December, I'll draw a winner 
out of all the entries that we've received, and you're going to receive this one-of-a-kind piece of original artwork featuring the Silicates. Again, go back to episodes 44 and 45 and check out the episode images for those episodes so you can see what the artwork looks like, and they look so much better in person. You've no idea how jealous I am that one of y'all is going to get this, and I don't get to keep it. Big thanks to Tom for making that happen, and big thanks to everybody who's given us a review in the iTunes store. Remember, we've got the 50 review challenge going on right now. If we can get up to 50 honest reviews in the iTunes store, we're going to launch a new feature here on Monster Kid Radio. So head over there if you're a user of iTunes and drop us an honest review. I'm not just looking for a handout. I'm not looking for a gimme. I'm not just saying five stars, whatever. Give me an honest review. Once we get 50, something special on the show that I think you guys and gals are going to dig. To go back to previous guests that we've had here on the show. Back in episodes 15 and 16, we had Joe Stuber on the show. Now, Joe Stuber is the man behind the new podcast, Comic Book Central. I've played the promo for that show in the past here on the show. Their website's comicbookcentral.net. Well, Comic Book Central isn't Joe's only podcasting project. He is a regular contributor to the IndieCast, which is the foremost podcast devoted to all things Indiana Jones, and they just celebrated their sixth anniversary. So I want to say congratulations to everybody over there at the IndieCast for hitting this six-year mark. It's amazing. One, I'm a big fan of Indiana Jones. Two, the serials that we talk about sometimes here on the show, like The Crimson Ghost with Eric J. Peterson, Indiana Jones wouldn't exist if it wasn't for some of these serials. And a lot of these serials have horror or monster kid flavorings or trappings to them. So I think it's relevant. I'm going to play a promo to the IndieCast. Then we're going to get into part one of the Monster Mania coverage with Scott and Tracy Morris from Disney Indiana right about now. in each fortnight to the IndieCast, the world's number one Indiana Jones fan podcast. Trust me. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and interviews with on-screen and behind-the-scenes talent who help bring to life the greatest adventure movie series ever made. Each episode has the latest from the world of Indiana Jones, as well as interactive segments, trivia, contests, and specials, including radio dramas and music retrospectives. The IndieCast. It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. Available in iTunes or listen directly at theindiecast.com. If adventure has a name, it must be the IndieCast. A few weeks ago, our guest on the show this week had an opportunity to do something Amazing. It was in conjunction, I believe, with Halloween. It happened in October. They went to a movie theater, and over the course of two days, they saw, what was it, six guys? Six, six Universal Monsters? Six Universal Monster films. Were they film? Yes, original 35. 35 millimeter film. Man, I'm so jealous. If I could have tucked myself into Scott or Tracy's pocket to go to the movies with them, I would have. I'm talking about Scott and Tracy Morris here on the show. How's it going, guys? Good, and I wouldn't have shared my popcorn with you. I would have. Thank you, Tracy. That's why you're my favorite. <laughs> so I want to welcome you back to Monster Kid Radio. Now, if you are just now joining us here on the show, Scott's been on the show to talk about uh, Harryhausen film and you know Disney-friendly Monster Kid movies. We've had Tracy on the show to talk about Valley of Guanji. They're also the high muckety-mucks of Disney Indiana. And I am also uh, Derek's co-host on 1951 Downplace. See, I was going to give you a chance to shine about your own podcast, though, the one that I don't have anything to do with. The better production. The one I'm on. That's right. See? <laughs> so Scott and Tracy are longtime Disney fans, but 
we also let them come into the Monster Kid Clubhouse quite a bit because they love these classic movies as much as we do. And man, the Artcraft Movie Theater showed these movies. Yes, they had uh, what they called the Monster Mania Weekend. Now, the Artcraft Theater is in Franklin, Indiana, which is located about 20 miles south of Indianapolis. And it's owned and managed by Franklin Heritage, which is a local nonprofit historical society organization. They show a mix of classic and somewhat older films. I think they have to be at least 10 years old. They try to show films, actual film, whenever possible. It's just a really neat environment. The theater itself was built in 1922 as a vaudeville theater that also showed films. And the film has had uh, Hollywood shine on it because in 1986, it premiered, uh, had the world premiere of the film Hoosiers was uh, done there one month before the national release. Oh, wow. Okay. And then Franklin Heritage actually bought the theater in 2004, and that's when they started the renovations to return it to its 1930s, 1940s glory. So it's a restored theater. So when you go there, it's not just a movie showing these older movies. It's been restored. It's like a classic movie house. Yes. And it is. Yeah. (laughs) It has the curtains uh, that open up. Well, actually, they're raising money to buy new curtains, but they've got the curtains. The whole evening that you go to a film there, they try to replicate an evening of seeing a film in that time frame. They do a lot of interaction with the crowd that you don't get today in the films. For example, they do a prize drawing based on your ticket number. So when you go in, of course, they tear your ticket in half, and they're actual movie tickets. And you keep half, and then they bring out a, I don't know exactly what you call it, like a ticket tumbler from the 1930s, where they've put all the other stubs. It's Yeah, a big uh, metal-looking thing that you might see bingo balls be put in. Huh, and then, okay. they, you know, they, they tumble it several times to mix everything real well, and then they pick out a ticket. But you forgot the most important thing. They warn you not to stare at it while it's spinning, or you will get mesmerized. mesmerized. <laughs> like, like we said, <laughs> okay. there's a lot of group participation, a lot of crowd participation. So they, they pick that out. And the, the prizes are always somehow tied into what they're Whatever showing at the movie. Showing, yeah. it's, it's little things. They're usually donated by a local business. But, for example, this weekend they gave out uh, the Monster Cereals, the General Mills Monster Cereals. Usually something small, like if you got the Frankenberry, they also gave you a couple bolts. If you got the Count <laughs> Chocula, you got a clove of garlic with it. See, garlic and chocolate. That's... Um, uh. But they also do other things. Uh, When they bring a film in for the weekend, it's shown twice on Friday, twice on Saturday. And occasionally a Sunday matinee. If it's it's a real popular one. And they're shown at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and 7.30 at night. Now, the 7.30 at night ones is where they go all out and they have the prize drawings. They also have something called Short Attention Span Theater, where some of their volunteers will put on a little skit that lasts anywhere from a minute to 90 seconds based on whatever film is playing that night. And they're usually, uh, either they got really bad puns or they're, they're funny. But then when the films start, not only do they show the film, but beforehand they play the national anthem, just like theaters used to do. And everybody gets up and they play a, a film on the screen that has the flag on it and the, and the words so you can sing along if you don't know them. And then they usually play a cartoon. Most often it's a Warner Brothers cartoons. So you forgot their one other... Uh crowd 
participation is they ask who traveled the farthest to see the film. So they start with anybody outside of central Indiana and then to go outside further and state. further outside of the state. And they ask the person up on stage. They bring out a map of the United States and a map of the world. Because they we have, have had, been there where they've had people come, been there from Europe. And they get to place a pin on the map that represents their hometown. They receive a certificate good for a, a popcorn. Well, the certificate laminated in the finest plastics that they make there in Franklin, Indiana. <laughs> they receive that certificate. And then last but not least, they have to answer the question. Did you know that this film is available on DVD? <laughs> <laughs> nice. So this isn't just you know, going out to the movie to, to kill some time. This is an event. Yes. This is going to the movies when it actually meant something. You know, you, you have the food, you got the concessions, you've got a short, you have a, a family night out basically at the, at the movies. It's a classic film experience. Mm -hmm. And nice. they give they have huge community support. Not only are most of the roles filled by volunteers, just about everyone that works there is is a volunteer. But each film that they show is sponsored by a local business. So is the cartoon. So is the concession stand, Candy of the Month. Uh, you can also buy memberships to the Art Craft Theater. I think there's three different levels available to the public. Each of those includes a certain number of admissions. Obviously, the higher the level, the more admissions, uh, concessions, and then higher levels get some other perks. And yeah. even though Scott and I live about an hour and a half away, we are members. If I lived any closer, I would definitely volunteer and work there. Oh, wow. And I think you'd have so much fun. <laughs> I would be part so, of the short attention span theater. Yes, yes you would. <laughs> so this is in Franklin, Indiana. You can find out about it over at their website at, at uh, Historic Artcraft Theater, and that's theater with an R-E. Org. There will be a link in the show notes to this. Now, this isn't the first time you guys have been to the Artcraft, though. I mean, you've been here for other events as well, right? Well, this was the, the second film festival. film festival that we went to. Uh, last year, we saw the Alfred Hitchcock Film Festival, which was the same thing where they showed two movies on Friday night and four on Saturday. And one of the th really cool things they did for that, the very last film of the night on Saturday night was The Birds. And it ended, oh... 10 after 12, quarter after 12. And to walk out of the art craft, you walk out of the theater, you have to go back through the main lobby and out. Well, the main lobby, they d had decorated it, and there had to have been 50, 60 black bird... You know, stuffed birds. Stuffed birds, birds placed all over the lobby. All right, so wait, wait, they decorated the lobby while the movie was playing. Yes. yes. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> So, you know, you're walking out after sitting there seeing four movies, long day, it's, you know, after midnight, just seeing the birds, and there's just all these birds looking at you when you walk out. It was it was kind of creepy, but it was very cool. That's very cool. Now, did they do anything fancy decoration-wise for the Universals? What they did, one of their board members has a very large Universal toy collection, and he brought that in, and so he had a couple of uh, or tons of different sta uh, statues and action figures posters, posters just all kinds of really interesting memorabilia and left that on display for, for the, the entire weekend. weekend nice now some of these movies you've seen before but some of these were first time views for you am i right yes that is true actually what for me i'd only yeah? seen one of them before all the way through oh and that one i had just seen for the first time last halloween 
So this was <gasps> nice. Well, yep, I can't I've, wait to hear your thoughts on it then. That's... So I've, I've increased my Monster Kid cred exponentially. Uh, you, you had, this weekend. The minute you appeared on the show to talk about Valley of Guanji, you, your cred went I mean, sky high. You're fine. Aww, Nothing thanks. to worry about. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. <laughs> Unless you didn't like the movies you saw. And then, well, maybe we have to talk. But let's talk about the movies. <laughs> you, you had two movies the first night. Yes. Which were the two films? Uh, 1931's Dracula okay. and 1941's The Wolfman. All right. So we are kicking things off then with pretty much the first talkie, talking Universal Monster movie, Dracula, kind of ushered in the cycle with Bela Lugosi in the role, and for better or for worse, kind of linked him to that role for most of his, well, his entire life after that. This was a film print, so it's not necessarily the restored version that just came out on Blu-ray a while back. How did the film look? It looked pretty good. In fact, most of the films were in really good shape that we saw over the weekend. I think there was just one, was it the mummy that had the scratch in it that lasted? Right, and there was uh, also one scene missing in The Wolfman that we'll get to. But uh, yeah, Dracula, it looked really good. It didn't look dark. It wasn't scratched up. It was a a very good uh, print to see. It was kind of unusual for us because um, this is one that I had seen a long time ago. Tracy, I don't think, had seen this one. So it was a little difficult for us to watch coming from seeing more modern films with the lack of music and some of the pacing in this film. And it actually kind of boiled over to some of the crowd, uh, I think, had some issues with it as well because there was Uh some there was some laughter at at parts that weren't meant to weren't meant to be funny. Okay. We talked a little bit with one of the directors of the Artcraft Film Festival on the breaks, and they said that they tried to pick what they thought would be the most popular films for their 7.30 slots. So Dracula on Friday night, and then Frankenstein was the Saturday night show, because those are the ones where the community usually comes in. They said they get people who don't really care what they're showing. They just show up and buy their tickets and walk into the film because they know it's going to be something good. They trust the uh, Franklin Heritage that much to choose quality films. But huh. yeah, it was, a, a, was again, you could tell a portion of the crowd was not accustomed to watching films from this time period. You know, I love Dracula. I think it's a great film. I think it's a very important film, and I love Lugosi in the role. That said, I think a lot of people love the idea of Dracula, but you're right. It is stagey. It doesn't have a lot of it doesn't have any music at all outside of the opening and closing credits. And, and that does does lead to some awkward laughter yeah. for people that haven't seen it before. It is a transitionary kind of film. You're going from silent film era to talking. You've got Bela Lugosi, who doesn't have a mastery of the never had a mastery of the English language. And, and so, you've got most of the actors that are coming from stage as well. Yeah. Right, because not only Bela Lugosi, I mean, he originated the role of Count Dracula in the stage play, but didn't two other actors come over as well? I think it was, was it Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing that came over from the play? And right, I can't yeah, remember Sloan. if it was Harker or the David Manners or Herbert Bunston as uh, John Harker or Do- Dr. Seward that also came over from the play. So they may have been very used to playing those roles as mm-hmm. a, the stage play version versus a movie. Sure, you've got that. Plus, you've got the director, Todd Browning, who really, yes, Dracula's an important film. Freaks is an important film, probably not for the same reasons. But Todd Browning's 
filmography, I think, shines the most when he was working with Lon Chaney Sr., making the silent films. So it's not like Browning had the mastery of where to put a microphone and where to get the best, you know, or how to get the best performance vocally out of somebody, that sort of thing, you know? So there are some things about this film that if you're not in the right mood, laughter might be a little stagnant at spots, which is unfortunate because it's such a good film otherwise. I mean, cinematography I love in this film. Mm-hmm. And I really, really enjoyed Dwight Fry's performance as Renfield. Steals the screen, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He definitely steals the film. Yeah. I didn't realize until probably halfway to three quarters of the way through the film that I had already seen him in a Universal Monster movie as he plays Fritz, the assistant, Mm -hmm. in Frankenstein. Yep. So it's like, oh, and then it kind of clicked. It's like... Oh, okay, yeah, I can see some of the same body language, some of the same manic gestures, but yeah, I just loved Renfield. Again, Fry and Lugosi were probably my favorite performers in this film. Uh, Mina was okay. Yeah. John Harker, wow. Yeah, I I had a hard time with, with John Harker. Poor David Manners. You know, David Manners appears in a number of universal horror movies. He appeared in Dracula. He appears in The Mummy. He appears in The Black Cat. But I feel like the guy just never gets a break. He's never really given a phenomenal role to sink his teeth into, you know? Or he doesn't have the right director or something. There's just something about Manners that, I mean, you look at him, he's got the cut. He's got the build. He should be a romantic figure. But he's not. There's something that just doesn't translate. I don't know what that is. Well, they also took away a chunk of his character because Harker was the one that was supposed to go to Dracula in Transylvania and set up the whole transition, you know, at least in the novel, which is probably my my touchstone for the story as I listened to the audio drama sometime last year, and it, which... I can highly recommend the audible.com audio drama with Tim Curry as Van Helsing and Alan Cumming as Dr. Seward. Nice. I also kind of missed some of the other characters that came from the novel, Arthur and Quincy, who also helped track down Dracula and dispatch him, but I can understand why they were dropped from the play and the movie. Right, and that's the thing. The movie's based on the play, which is based on the novel, so it's not even just a first-generation copy. You're going to get those things, or mm-hmm. you're going to lose some of these things, I guess, or sure. or maybe even have some elements added in uh, from the stage production that weren't in the novel and that sort of thing. So I've also heard that as a, I don't want to say complaint, because I don't feel like you're complaining, but a criticism of the film, perhaps, that in terms of an adaptation, it's lacking from the novel. Right. Well, the, another issue, and not really issue, or, or it, my own personal bias watching this film had to do with uh, Edward Van Sloan, because there's only one man who's Van Helsing to me. <laughs> and that would be? Peter Cushing. But That's right. <laughs> you know, for this film, Edward Van Sloan fits in this film. Yes, he does. For what he's being asked to do. I prefer Van Sloan in at least one of the other movies that you saw this weekend that we're talking about. Because he also appears in a number of Universal films. But yeah, I mean, Peter Cushing, come on. (laughs) 
there was also another issue that we had with the film. There seemed to be a couple of plot points that were brought up that were never really followed up on. Uh, like, Such as? Lu- like Lucy. Mm. You, she, you see her get turned to a vampire, but then you don't really know whatever happened to her. Is she still out there? Or Right, because we know Mina was turned to vampire and she was saved by Dracula's death. But she, So she presumably returned to human form. Did that happen to, to Lucy? Lucy? Or had she been a vampire for too long? Mm. And I, I read somewhere that that may have been resolved in the original shooting script, but Todd Browning had some episodes where he just kind of tore pages out of the script, decided, <laughs> okay, we're, we're not going to bother filming this. And of course, a film from 1931, there may be other edits, there may be other versions that have been lost over the years, I would imagine. Sure. I'd be real interested in maybe comparing this film shot by shot, beat by beat, with the Spanish version of the movie, which was shot at the same time, using the same script, the same sets even, just a different act, set of actors who all spoke Spanish. Well, so I'd be interested to see if there may be some things crept in there, you know what I mean? Well, I know Tracy is really interested in seeing the, the Spanish version because she speaks Spanish as well. In fact, partly spurred by this Monster Mania Film Festival, we finally did go ahead and get the Universal box set of these films. And oh, all okay. the, with all the extras, we haven't broken into it yet. I didn't want to because I didn't want to confuse our experience with the Monster Mania, you know, throw in other stuff that we'd seen or done since then. But yeah, I'm, I'm champing at the bit to... To view that version of Dracula. Well, tell you what, let's uh, let's make it official. After you watch it, you want to talk about it here on the show? Sure. Done. It's a date, but oh, it should, it should be got. in Spanish. The whole thing. Oh. <laughs> Derek's going to be going. See. <laughs> See. No. <laughs> Donde está la biblioteca? <laughs> Where is the library? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's being generous. <laughs> <laughs> All right, as far as this Dracula goes, so I mean, like I said, I still love the film. Yeah, I'm making some comments that might be interpreted as maybe I'm disparaging it, and I'm not. I think it's an important film. I think it looks gorgeous. I think it's great that when Universal put that Blu-ray set out, that this was the film they chose to spend a lot of money on restoring versus Frankenstein, which is probably a more popular film overall. Dracula, I think, sometimes gets a little forgotten in terms of the importance of the Universal monster movies because everybody goes to Frankenstein first. Yeah. I just think it's a great film, and I think because we love it so much, we can talk about some of the areas in the film that might be lacking. I enjoyed watching Go. Dracula quite a bit as well. Um, you know, seeing Bella's, if not his signature role, one of two. I mean, there is Plan Nine, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. well, yeah, of course. Well, Scott. but no. In all seriousness, I I do enjoy watching his performance in this film. In fact, you had an interesting comment to make about his performance when we were talking about kind of the 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 staginess, the kind of wooden, not wooden, but the very formal interactions. A lot of that, in my mind, can be kind of brought to well. He's been off in Transylvania for so long or been in his coffin for so long. He just is out of step with how, at the time, modern day was. 
And that's why he comes off as kind of stagey or wooden, just because he's so uncomfortable in modern day settings. Mm. I, I well, kind of like that. Yeah. There you go. I like it. The Monster Kid Radio, no price to Scott then. All right. <laughs> well, speaking of ref- referring to elements of legend and whether or not they fit, we learned that the the Wolfman, our next movie, actually contributed quite a bit to the current Wolfman ethos, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. Are, are we ready to move on to that, Scott? I am. Okay. Unless Derek wanted to talk about Dracula anymore. No, I mean, I just, I love Dracula. So <laughs> the Wolfman, though, I actually love a little bit more. I'm a huge fan of the Wolfman. I love Lon Chaney Jr. Was this the first time for you two as well on this one? This was our first viewing. And really, this was one of the first uh, films that I had seen Lon Chaney Jr. in. The same with me. And it definitely is not going to be the last film I see him in. I am, I'm really interested in his career. His whole portrayal of Larry Talbot was just, wow. I don't yeah. know if it's... Especially compared with Dracula, and again, we talked about the more formal, the more staginess. The Wolfman, it was amazing to see in 10 years how much advancement had been made, not only in terms of the technical aspects of filmmaking, but also the style of acting. Interesting movies to do back-to-back, because like, there's a 10-year gap, but there are leaps and bounds between the films in terms of cinematography, moving the camera around, the acting, the style of acting, the pacing, the editing, the storytelling, the special effects. Mm-hmm. And in the performance of Bela Lugosi. <laughs> that's true. You had a Bela Lugosi double feature. That's right, because he plays Bella. Yes. In this film. And I thought he was a lot better actor in this film, even though he's not in the film very long. I thought he handled his stage presence or film presence uh, better than he did in Dracula. And you guys have got to see him play Igor in Son of Frankenstein and Ghost of Frankenstein. I'm telling you, he's amazing. But there was one other actor in this film that I want to see more of, and that's Claude Rains. I really enjoyed his performance <laughs> as... Uh, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> as, uh, as Sir John Talbot, I, Larry's father. I really liked his character in this film as well. Yeah, and I thought Reigns and Chaney had some really strong chemistry on screen as a father-son relationship, even though they look nothing like each other. Claude Reigns is, what, 5'6", and Lon Chaney's (laughs) over 6 foot. So, yeah, mom must have been... A big girl. Yeah. No, they have a great chemistry in terms of that. You said father-son. It's a strained father-son relationship. Lon's character, Talbot's been in America for, what they say, 10 years? It's been a while. Yes. Which explains He's, why he has an American accent instead of a British yes. accent. <laughs> and it you know, gives us some cultural differences, differences in how you interact with people. I guess in 1941 America, it was okay to spy the girl next door with a telescope. Well, that's where he was learning how to... <laughs> Uh, controlled or not control, but to uh, service telescopes and obviously also how to spy on neighbors with them. Sure. Yeah, that was one scene I was really uncomfortable watching. Again, I don't know how much of it is a culture change, but even in 1941, I would think it's really not cool 
to be spying on a woman in her bedroom. Admittedly, she wasn't doing much. Yeah, she was putting on makeup and jewelry. Yeah. I mean, she was fully dressed. Can you imagine and, if that film was shot today? And then to oh, go boy. down and tell her that you had just been spying on her, basically. And not in so many words, but yeah, that was... And just, again, his whole physical presence was just... If I had been Gwen Conliffe, I would have... All my spidey senses would have been tingling, saying, this guy is nothing but trouble. You know, the whole... He's a creep. He's a creep, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what would Which be worse? Shame. What would be worse? Him spying on you with a telescope and not telling you? Or him spying on you with a telescope and then just flat out walking up and admitting to doing it? Like, what? what's creepier, I guess? Actually, this to me, the second is creepier because it shows a lack of social awareness. Telling somebody, hey, I was just looking in your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been even worse. He could have told you like on your second wedding anniversary. Oh, you, know, you want to know the real story of how I met you? <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, we're talking about Gwen, played by Evil and Anchors, and Cheney and Anchors appeared in a number of films together. And they quite had great a few. chemistry in this film as well. Once you got back that awkward, meet cute situation, I agree. They, they did have excellent chemistry together. In fact, I thought they made a better couple than Gwen and her actual fiancé, Frank Andrews, played by Patrick Knowles. I think sometimes because I'm so overly familiar with these films, yeah, I just kind of accept, yes, they have good chemistry, they're whatever. As first-time viewers, it's interesting to hear you say that you also thought they had great chemistry, despite the fact that Anchors and Cheney Jr. did not get along at all. She was not a fan of Lon. Not sure why. She said a few times in interviews, kind of implied that he was kind of a jokester, a prankster on set, and just kind of took things a little too far with her sometimes. Mm. But that's about it. There was really never... You know, he tried to do this, this happened there. There was nothing like that that was just overly concrete as to evidence as to why they didn't get along. It's unfortunate because they work so well together in this, in Son of Dracula, they're great together. They've done some other films together and they're fantastic. A Weird Woman is amazing. More, oh, well. fi more films for us to, uh, to track down. Like we said, we really enjoyed this film. And we mentioned during uh, Dracula when you were asking of how the film looked – this film yeah. did, it looked great. We didn't notice any kind of scratches or anything like that. But there was a scene in the film, and it's actually a very important scene that we, we didn't know anything was cut, but there were some people around us that... Well, there, it, it, it felt there was a little an, off. Yeah, a little off, but not having seen the film, it was kind of hard to really put our finger on it. But there were some people around us that, that reacted like something was missing. And that was the scene... Uh, where Bella, as the Wolfman, attacks Lon Chaney. Okay. We see Bella doing his um, fortune telling. We see the moon come out. He we tells the girl stepping to... away and going behind the gypsy wagon and you know the struggle. Yeah, he tells the girl to run away and he's he's struggling. The next thing we kind of see is is everybody kind of running through the forest. And then it cuts to. Larry Talbot returning to his room after what had obviously been some kind of struggle and collapsing on the bed. But again, oh, wow. we don't... We don't see the actual fight. Right. We, That's which, a heck of a jump. Yeah, but it still kind of worked. It just made us assume that 
there had he had been a encountered, fight. Yeah, he had encountered Bella as the Wolfman. You know, what's interesting about that, too, and I don't know, have you gone back to watch the film since then? No, we have, scene? Yeah, we have not. So in that scene, and this is something that gets addressed in a novel uh, called The Return of the Wolfman, came out in the 90s. The Wolfman that attacks Lon or Larry is a dog. I mean, it's a wolf, okay, played by a dog. It's not somebody done up in makeup. So I almost wonder if seeing it the way you did makes it better because it's not somebody done up the way Talbot's done up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's actually Lon Chaney's dog you know, <laughs> attacking him on set, you know, and playing around or whatever. So interesting. That kind of makes me wonder if the longer one has been a werewolf, do you become more and more wolf-like? Because we assume that Bella has been a werewolf for who knows how long. We don't know how right. long he was affected. Something to think about. So- there's something to look. Yeah, it's a good way to look at it. See, there you go. You're just just you know again, Monster Kid Radio, no prize to you. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned earlier that this film really kind of set the stage for what we even now think of werewolves. You know, the idea of silver and all these other things. I mean, these are concepts that were brought to the screen out of whole cloth. I mean, this was courtesy of Kurt Siodmek, who wrote the thing. I was going to say about the biggest thing that we think of when you think of a werewolf that really wasn't touched on in this film was the full moon effect. Yeah, because Bela turns when he sees the moon, right. but it's not reinforced. I don't think it's not reinforced that it has to be a full moon. Yeah, because the little rhyme. Even a man again, who is pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. So it doesn't quite say full moon. Mm-hmm. Just a bright moon. This is actually something that kind of gets touched on a little bit in American Werewolf in London as well with instead of, you know, full moon or whatever being the only thing that carries over. But they've got the, the pentagram and all this other stuff. He kind of wrapped up in it. And it's fascinating to me. And, and this sorry. Film did so much. And I wanted to say sorry to Nick Brown out there, but American Werewolf in London was the only werewolf film that I had seen up until seeing The Wolfman. We won't tell him. <laughs> I guess my closest is the uh, the extended thriller video. Well, that too. Yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> nice. Now, this was not the first werewolf film by Universal. They actually did one beforehand called Werewolf of London, uh, 1935, starring Henry Hull. Uh, now, Jack Pierce, who did the makeup for Lon Chaney Jr. and The Wolfman, did the werewolf design in this one as well. Not quite the same uh, reports for that Hull was not overly fond of the idea of so much makeup on his face. So he had to kind of change the design, curtail the design a little bit and created this alternate Wolfman type or Werewolf of London type makeup. I'd actually recommend you guys check out Werewolf of London. It's got some interesting acting in it. But again, you don't have the silver. You don't have all this stuff. You've got Wolfbane, but that's about it. Well, I I do need to amend my list. I have seen um, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein and Lon Chaney shows up there as the Wolfman. That's true. And it's it's the same guy, basically. I mean, it's. It's actually Larry Talbot, isn't it? Yeah. He, yeah. At that point, he knows about when it's going to happen to him because he begs people to lock him into a room so he can't, right. can't escape by that point. So he's, he's now – that's how he deals with it by that point. Yeah, Lon Chaney Jr. is the only guy to play Larry Talbot for Universal during the classic cycle. There was that remake a couple of years ago, but Talbot 
appears in this film and then as well as Frankenstein meets the Wolfman and then the two House of movies, Frankenstein and Dracula, and then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Same guy, basically the same character arc. Although what happens at the end of House of Dracula doesn't lead nicely into how he starts in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Again, that got addressed in that novel, Return of the Wolfman from the 90s. They explain what happened there and why. But yeah, I mean, through most of the films, it's, you know, I'm not happy with what I'm doing. I need to be cured. Lock me up. I'm looking for a cure. That sort of thing. Just fascinating stuff. And I would recommend just checking them all out. I mean, you'll get to see Patrick Knowles in the next one as well. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. He appears in that film as well. And he's a little bit less, I don't know, awkward in that one. I definitely want to see more of the Wolfman films and uh, Lon Chaney's work. Oh, me too. One little minor issue I had with this film. I kind of wish they had combined the characters of Colonel Montford and Frank Andrews. Frank Andrews was the uh, Talbot's gameskeeper and Mm -hmm. Gwen's fiance, whereas Colonel Munford was the one really doing the investigation of what happened to Jenny Williams, Gwen's friend who was killed by the werewolf, and what's going on. It almost would have been a little more effective to me if the same person that Gwen was involved with would have been also investigating Talbot. So you're just wanting to set up another love triangle, not like we saw enough of them over the weekend. There already was a love triangle. (laughs) I'm just trying to make it a little more cohesive. (laughs) Yeah, obvious, cohesive, what have you. Yeah, that was another complaint I had about kind of all these films is the women were there to be the apex of the love triangle and had not a whole lot of other substance. Which again, looking at when the films came out, 30s, 40s, I can understand, but... (sighs) We don't have to be happy about it. Right. Now, speaking of women, though, what were your thoughts on Maria Ospenskaya? I really liked her. She was the gypsy woman who was the mother of Bela, and I thought she was an excellent actress. I liked her role, the way she almost tried, once she realized that Larry had been affected... You know, she tried to advise him, tried to mentor him and provide some sort of support as she had done with her son all those years. She kind of becomes a a surrogate mother type character to him and cu- guides him mm-hmm. through through his life as a wolf man or a werewolf type character. And I, I do find that relationship really interesting as well. Uh, she does also appear in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. I was going to ask that. Yeah I, yeah, I liked the scene between the two of them next to Bella's coffin, where oh, she's yeah. telling him more about, you know, what he's going to experience and what life's going to be like. And you know, it just keeps scaring him more and more until he run, runs away. Yeah, no, she's she's great. I mean, she's an Academy Award nominated actress, having been nominated for two Oscars, once for a film in which she only appeared four and a half minutes. Wow. Uh, she was nominated to uh, supporting Oscars over her lifetime. A Russian actress came over early, did some silent films in Russia before that. It's a fascinating actress and woman I'd like to learn more about myself. But she's great. And, man, I'm so jealous I didn't get to see this. On the big screen. I mentioned earlier, I wish I was in your guys' pocket. I wouldn't have lasted. I would have been up in the front row. I would have crawled out and just stuck up to the front row and hope nobody noticed that I didn't have a torn ticket. Well, you could have sat right next to the uh, full skeleton that was sitting in the front row of the theater. Yeah. Yeah. There was a group that did the um, short attention span theater 
there was enough people in the in the group that each one of them was dressed up as a different character from the uh, from the films that we were watching. And when they first showed up, they put a full skeleton, adult sized skeleton, sitting in the front row of the theater. And over the course of the weekend, he had popcorn. He had um, something to drink. <laughs> and for the last film, he had the 3D glasses. That's right. Had- nice. The last film being, well, well, we'll get to it. But I think it's it's my favorite, and everybody knows it. And there's a connection uh, to that film. In The Wolfman, which we'll get to when we come back in part two, when we talk about what happened on day two at Monster Mania at the Arcraft. Is there anything else you want to talk about day one before we sign off and let, let the listeners go? Just if you're anywhere near central Indiana and you're looking for a good time, go to the Arcraft. It is a lot of fun. I would agree. Thank you to Scott and Tracy for sharing their experiences with us here at Monster Kid Radio. I know we couldn't get out there. I couldn't get to the Monster Mania event, but man, how awesome would it be to sit there and watch these movies, 35mm prints of these films over the course of two days with, well, Scott and Tracy, some of my fellow Monster Kids. I mean, how awesome would that have been? So I'm really grateful that they took the time to tell me about it and tell us about it, and that they're going to be coming back here in part two to talk about the four other movies they saw on day two of the Monster Mania event. Also, I got to say thanks to Scott and Tracy because anytime I have either one of them on the show, they go out of their way to make sure that they actually record the conversation as well. While I may do the bulk of the producing on Monster Kid Radio, if it wasn't for Scott hitting record on his machine and sending me the files, it wouldn't sound nearly as good. So thank you for that as well. And thank you, the listeners, for enjoying the show and bringing us to episode 50 of Monster Kid Radio. Also, big thanks to the Radioactive Kids for allowing us to play their song on the show this week. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivations, 3.0 unported license. Of course, Surf Mummies, that belongs to the Radioactive Kids. It appears on their self-titled album, which you can find on their website at radioactivekids.bandcamp.com. See you in episode 51. Teenagers prepare for a secluded